So we're starting a new series um, titled Jesus the I Am. And this series is developed from the uh, seven I Am statements that we find in the book of John, the Gospel of John. And we're only going to cover five of those uh, seven statements, which will take us um, through to um, Palm Sunday. Now, today we're going to be focusing on Jesus being the bread of life. And we're going to do this by covering all of John chapter 6. So we'll be doing quite a bit of reading. So you can grab um, your Bibles. You can follow along on the screen. And we're going to be doing a lot of reading. And we'll be using the ESV since I know most of you guys have ESV. um, Just in case you have your Bible in front of you. A lot of ESV readers in here, right? (laughs) Now, as I said before, we're going to go through the entire book. Uh, entire chapter, I should say, um, today. And I'm going to start by reading the first uh, 14 verses. Um, there's much to cover. And it says here, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and the large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up into the mountain, and there he sat down, Uh, with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then in seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Pray that we will receive all that God has to say to us today. Now, we've just read 14 verses and I'm not quite sure how many were paying attention as we were reading, but I want you to pay attention to verse 14, um, especially the latter part. The people saw the sick being healed, but it was the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 that caused them to declare that this was indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now, it talks about 5,000 men, and we've said this several times, that um, through um, biblical history and through cultural history, they didn't count the women and children. So 5,000 men were representing households. So when they say 5,000 men, um, many have said it could have been 15,000 or more. We don't know the true number, but what we do know is that 5,000 homes were represented there. Now, except for the resurrection of Jesus, uh, this is the only miracle that's recorded in all uh, four Gospels. This chapter is structured in such a way 
that we have this segue between this miracle of the 5,000 and a story that is also only recorded in this gospel, John's gospel. And the segue is found in verses 15 through 21. So after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, we're told that in the evening, the disciples got into a boat and they're about to make their way back to Capernaum. Some say Capernaum. And Capernaum is um, on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. Um, there's a slide, as you can see. And I want you to see the slide. So right there in that corner is where they're feeding the 5,000. Now, Capernaum, or Capernaum, is the home base of Jesus' ministry. Now, you can see the distance quite a bit going across this ocean or the sea. The interesting thing about this is that Jesus didn't get into the boat with his disciples. He sent them ahead and went up to this mountain by himself. Now, here's why he went to this mountain alone. John 6, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So it's evident that the crowd had tried to make him king before because it says he withdrew again. So the people are satisfied with the miracles and figured they should keep Jesus around. Jesus says, not so fast. Then he withdrew to the mountain. Now, in the middle of the night, the disciples are in the boat in the Sea of Galilee, and they're heading to, to Capernaum, and they experienced this storm. John 6, let's go to verses 18 to 21. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, three or four miles from what we showed you earlier is a pretty long distance when you're crossing this ocean. In fact, the average depth of the sea that they're in is 25 feet, and the maximum depth is 157 feet. Now, I want you to see this other image that we have here. As you can see on both sides, this is the mountain that is surrounding the Sea of Galilee. Um, so if Jesus was going up this mountain, it would have taken quite a bit of time for him to get up to the mountain, but also to come down. Not an easy walk. Now look at this other Im image right here. If Jesus is taking another boat across the sea, it would have been easy for them to see him because he would have been sailing in an open space. And yet Jesus defies natural law by walking on this water that you're seeing during a storm and walks towards the disciples' boat. Bear in mind now, these, the crowd is watching. They send this boat across. He's not in this boat. They see him go on this mountain. No one sees him walk in this water. And all of a sudden, he appears walking on this water in a storm. Now, I want you to imagine that scene. Now, in addition to all of this, when Jesus got into the boat, it says immediately the boat landed to where it was going. Now, when you're reading stories like these, it makes me wonder what Christ did in his spare time. 
you know, we know we're all, you know, gifted in some areas. And in our spirit time, we do things that people don't get a chance to see. How many of you guys are gifted in things that you do that no one gets to see? This, you do some stuff. Like, for example, the other day I was in my office and I heard uh, JP and, and Joel singing. I'm like, I'm like, they got some, a good voice, but we don't get to hear it, right? But maybe for some of you it's uh, cooking or painting or maybe you do pottery. Things that no one gets to see. But for Jesus in his spare time, he's casually walking on water. And then he teleports. Now let's continue reading. Verse 22 to 24. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now let's unpack what we just read. The group that Jesus fed, the 5,000, wakes up the next morning and figured it was time for breakfast since Jesus fed them yesterday. Now, they were fine with the disciples leaving the night before because they had nothing to offer. You know, the crowd wants the one who can feed them, not the helpers. Give us the rabbi. Give us the pastor. We don't want the minister leaders. No, we don't want the deacons. We want the ones who have much to offer. So, in fact, I want you to watch the boats and let us know if Jesus decides to leave. That's what they were saying. And since they didn't see Jesus get into the boat, they're searching to see where they can find him. But they couldn't find him. But no worries. They know where he lives. So they figured they'll get into the boats themselves and go into Capernaum to search for Jesus. They get to Capernaum and they find Jesus. Look at what they said in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? In other words, we thought you were up on the mountain, but you're here. Why didn't you tell us you were leaving? Here's what Jesus said, and I'm going to paraphrase for a little bit. He says, stop pretending. Stop pretending like you care about me. You don't even care about the signs and all the things that I've been doing. The only reason you're here is because you're hungry. You're seeking me because you have a need in your life. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So Jesus immediately speaks to their motivation. Their motivation was to seek Jesus for what he can give them. Their passion for Jesus was rooted in something physical, but his passion for them was rooted in the spiritual. They traveled by boats to see if there was anything else Jesus was willing to offer to meet their physical desire. They weren't interested in the spiritual truth. But Jesus is saying to them, 
True contentment is not found by what he gives to us, but who he is to us. Jesus, in his humanity, was hoping that the miracle of the 5,000 would have moved the crowd to consider their spiritual condition. Instead, it became an endless quest for physical sustenance. This is why God often uh, delays his blessings because he knows it will cause us to miss the purpose behind the blessings. So there's also another important lesson for us in this. So many times we go out of our way teaching Bible study after Bible study, hosting events after events, doing one good deed after another, believing it would create dependence on God, but instead we become the individual savior. We are the hero of the story. We make ourselves indispensable. Now, I'm not suggesting that you stop doing good, but I'm suggesting that we must be careful not to replace God by allowing others to see us as the source of what they need. Because what we're going to discover for the remainder of this chapter is that when Jesus doesn't meet their expectations, they slowly drift further away from him. It became this downward spiral. It's like they're expecting Jesus to meet their demands. Meet my demands or else. It's a terrible way to live, always giving an ultimatum. The moment you have to give an ultimatum, it's the downward spiral of that relationship. I'm going to show you how the crowd moved from being seekers to deserters. Um, let's go back to John 24. Let's look at the seekers for a moment. Verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. All of us start uh, seeking a relationship with Jesus. Some days are better than others. Um, but our spiritual journey, that's what will reveal the intentions of our hearts. It's not what we say right now, but it's the journey that we're on that's going to reveal our true condition. It's easy for me to say, I'm a Christian today. Give it time. Let's see how you really feel a year from now on your journey. Verses 27 to 29. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, of which the Son of Man will give to you for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who, has sent, who he has sent. Now they asked Jesus two questions that I find rather insulting based on what he had done the day before. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Now think about that. Yesterday, Jesus is performing all these miracles. He's healing the sick. That's what it says. And then he fed 5,000 plus people with five loaves two fish, and now they're saying to him, 
prove yourself. What can you do after all that they've seen? Isn't that the attitude of so many people in our culture? We pray for something, God grants it to us. We pray for something else, and if he doesn't respond, we say, well, I thought God really loved me. Is God even real? Let me just say this to us. God is not obligated to audition for us to prove his worth. He's not obligated to do that. Think about the air that you breathe, the job you have, or the comfort of your life. What more are you wanting God to do? Here was the crowd's attitude. Well, Jesus, the miracle that you performed, it was great, but that was yesterday. What about today? You didn't feed us today. In fact, you left. How many times has God uh, responded to our prayers and we failed to appreciate the results because we're still looking for the answer to another prayer? You prayed for an apartment, and before you moved in, you're already praying for something else. You haven't even started your new job, but you're already praying for a promotion. Are we spending more time praying for something that we desire and less time appreciating or thanking God for what he's done? I live by this statement, and I share it with my wife all the time. I said, learn to celebrate small victories. It may not be the thing that we want. You know, we're believing God for our own building, right? But we appreciate being here or having the extra space at upper room. Now, when I moved from Anacortes, having a backyard and these 19 fruit trees, I was hoping to get a house in Berkeley with a backyard. But I'm still thankful for my apartment. I'm appreciating what God has done and finding ways to experience joy with what I have. We must live with a heart of gratitude regardless of to whether or not God chooses to answer our prayers. We must trust that God has something better if he closes the door to an opportunity. So the crowd said, I know you fed me yesterday, but what have you done today? Look at what they said. They even got presumptuous and they had the spirit of entitlement. Verse 31, our fathers at the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, so they're even using the word, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. So they're not only questioning Jesus, but they're also demanding what they believe they're entitled to receive. They said, after all, our forefathers fed the people in the wilderness. Yep, that's what Moses did. He fed them manna every day. So they're saying, uh, give us this manna. Jesus said to them, let me actually clarify Moses didn't provide anything to them. 
My Father in heaven gave the provision. So let's get your facts together. God provided the miracle for his people. He says, for the record, God has provided a better kind of bread for you than the one in the wilderness, but you can't even see it. Now they're like, well, give us that bread. You know, why are you holding out? They're thinking about natural bread that they wanted to eat. But Jesus was trying to communicate something spiritual to them. Another story that comes to mind is the woman at the well. Uh, Jesus says to her, the water I give to you, you will never thirst again. She's like, well, bring it on. Give me this water so I can never come back to this well. Jesus was using symbolic terms to communicate his truth, and she couldn't understand. The same thing is happening in this story. They're like, oh, we're hungry. We want bread. We came by boats to get bread, and we're not leaving without bread. And Jesus said, you want bread? They're like, yeah. Can you imagine? Give us bread. Give us bread. Jesus said, I, I got you. I got bread that, that comes down from heaven. Now, if you have a relationship with me, this bread will satisfy the deepest hunger and you will never be hungry again. Now, can you imagine this crowd? Can you imagine someone saying, hey, listen up. Jesus is about to give us the good bread. Jesus says, seriously? You still don't get it, huh? Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So now we're going to find the complainers. Notice in verse 41, the seekers of Jesus have now become complainers of Jesus. They grumbled. They were praising Jesus yesterday, but complaining about him today. Remember that this same crowd in verse 14, let me remind you, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. But now they can't get what they want. They can't have things how they like it. They said, verse 42, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven. In other words, there's nothing special about him. So why is he saying he came down from heaven? 
One rejection reduced Jesus from being the prophet to being one of us. One rejection moved the crowd from seeking Jesus to complaining about Jesus. The inconsistency of the crowd. How often do we carry this same mindset into other areas of our lives? We have the best leader until we had to be corrected. The best job until we had to meet deadlines. The best teacher until we have midterms. And watch this. Correction from the leader was bound to happen. Meeting a few deadlines was always a part of the job description. Midterms at school was always going to happen. All these things are inevitable. And we know this to be true. And yet when these things happen, we reduce people to being less than who they are because we couldn't have it our way. Marveled at how Jesus provided bread yesterday to the point where they forcefully wanted him to be king. But today, they're grumbling and complaining that he didn't provide food like Moses in the past. The worst part is that they have never even met Moses. Today, Jesus is not the prophet. He's just the son of Joseph and Mary, simply because he said no. Is Jesus your Lord only when he performs for you? When you can't have things your way, is Jesus still Lord of your life? Do you reduce the sovereignty of God because he didn't meet your expectation? Verses 43 to 52. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for, for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So this crowd already has a bad attitude because they don't like what Jesus is saying, and Jesus has no intention of meeting their demands. And on top of all of this, they believe Jesus has lost his mind because he's talking about eating his flesh. Now, sidebar, the verses I'm about to read has sparked numerous debates throughout church history, specifically between Roman Catholics and Protestants. Now, we are Protestants. Now, I'll read the verses, and then I'll explain. This is where we're going to find the quarrelers. Verses 53 to 59. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, 
You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So, of course, when we do communion, we're always saying, this is my body. As often as we do this, we do this in remember of me. You guys know this very well. Yes? I know we're doing a lot of talking, talking, trying to get this through. As it relates to communion, Roman Catholics have a different belief than us Protestants. They take what Jesus said about eating his flesh and drinking his blood to mean something literal. Allow me to explain. Roman Catholics believe in a doctrine called transubstantiation. I'm going to read this from the Council of Trent, um, was read, um, 1551, and they actually updated this in the, in the 1600s. It says this, Because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the church of God, and this holy council now declares again that by the consecration of bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. So I'm not picking on their denomination, but it's important for me to explain this text and highlight the differences in belief. As Protestants, we don't embrace that, that belief. We believe that the elements are symbolic. The bread is symbolic of Christ's body. The juice is symbolic of Christ's blood. And his presence is with us, but not in a literal sense. Transubstantiation means that the bread turns into Christ's body. And the juice of the wine turns into his blood, which is what we read from the Council of Trent. So all through scriptures, Jesus actually used a lot of these extreme examples, which is why context and biblical history is important. Because we've seen where he says that if, you, if your arm offends you, what you, should, what you should do. What happens if your arm offends you? Cut it off, right? And if your eye offends you, do what? Pluck it out, right? Not something literal. So it's important that when we're reading, we understand the context and the biblical history in what we're reading because Jesus is not asking us to partake of his literal flesh. How do we know this? Because he tells us in this same chapter. Let's look at verses 6 to 63. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So they're saying, he's talking about eating his flesh. We can't listen to this. 
But Jesus, knowing in him that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So he gave us this response. So notice it's not a literal meaning. He said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The words have a spiritual meaning. So Jesus wants us to be fully invested into being consumed by him. So our physical response fuels our eternal destiny. There's a way in which we live physically, but it starts with our inward response. Think about how we respond physically after we've processed something internally. And sometimes if we're not at peace with how we're thinking, we might not make certain decisions. That internal um, response is causing us to now respond outwardly. So we have to be completely sold out for Jesus. We can't be this part-time Christian. So Jesus offered a full life on the cross when he died, and he desires nothing less than that for us, full commitment. Our complete surrenderance is important if, if Christ is supposed to be Lord of our lives. So everything we read in this chapter is rooted in a spiritual language. Now here's where we'll find the deserters. Verses 64 to 66. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The seekers in the beginning of our text became grumblers. They complained. Then they quarreled, and now we see them becoming deserters. Now, let me clarify something concerning the disciples. John is not referring to the 12 disciples who left. He's referring to the other followers of Christ. If you know, Jesus is always teaching, and what they would do is that, go by, go by, go by. Yes. I remember this sound. I used to always, uh, one of our friends in the Anacortes used to live right by the naval base, and they're always having these jets. And when... You know, when the jets are passing, people who don't know, they start talking louder and they're like, you're never going to, you know, your volume will never get over. They're like, and they're shouting. It's like, hey, the jet is passing. Just let it pass. They'll never get it. We all just stop talking. We're listening. And they're talking louder and louder. Anyway, just always think about that. But Jesus always had these disciples around them. So once you are leading someone, you became their disciples. If you notice that John the Baptist, he had disciples. So to Jesus, and you saw when he was resurrected, he appeared to the 500. So we see this throughout scripture. So when you talk about those leaving, he's talking about all those people who were following him who left from across the other side and came over. Just imagine 
5,000 plus people came across and now they're leaving. But you'll find that Christ actually had a separate uh, conversation with the remaining 12, which we'll read in a, in a moment. We all have a, you know, we place different values on the things that we seek from Jesus. So I'll never minimize the importance of your prayers. But I'll ask you this question. Do you draw near to seek the face of God or to seek his hand? You know, what do you do? Do you desire to have a relationship with Jesus because he's Lord of your life or because of what he can provide? This is, uh, this is the question that Jesus was asking after the crowd left, verse 67 to 71. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon, P Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, um, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I can just imagine how heartbreaking this was for, for Jesus, performing all these miracles, and yet, he's witnessing 5,000 people leave because he didn't meet their expectations. They didn't have things their way. The crowd got in the boats, came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus, and now he's watching them leave all over a free meal. They didn't get bread. You know, many leaders often joke about how people would argue and leave the church over silly things like the paint color on the wall or they didn't get to choose the church carpet. But 5,000 people stopped following Jesus altogether because he didn't give them bread. This passage is proof that people will leave a church for the simplest reasons. The day before, Jesus spent a whole day teaching, teaching about the kingdom of heaven. He's healing the sick, fed them food to eat, and now he's having a whole dialogue about bread. Not the kingdom of heaven. This all started because they wanted bread. Must be some good bread for them to travel across the water. I love bread, by the way. Just thought I'd just say that. All kinds of bread. I'm just having a bread moment. I was thinking about Krispy Kreme, sorry. But to think about these guys talking about manna from heaven, falling down, and to think about how that story about manna passed through generations, and here they are 
got bread that one time, and now they're saying, we're going to get in boats, cross the water to get some more bread. And it sounds, you know, silly, laughing, joking about bread. But the passage says that it wasn't the healing that drew them to Christ. It was the bread that they received. Which means that sometimes the simplest of things can be those things that can draw us to Christ. But those same simple things can also cause us to drift away from Christ. Couldn't get something as simple as bread, so now they're saying, I'm out of here. Jesus wants them to know that he can provide eternal satisfaction that will satisfy the appetite of their soul. He says, I'm offering you the bread of life that came down from heaven. But you must be consumed by my teaching. The crowd says, no, thank you. Got in their boats, and they left. So the only logical thing to do was to ask the remaining 12, are you going to leave like them? Peter responds to, to Jesus by saying, but where are we going to go since you are the one, the one that offers hope, peace, joy, and salvation? Where are we going to go? You are Christ, the Son of the living God. So right where we're supposed to be, we're right where it is. We're right where we're supposed to be because we desire eternal life. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. Whether you're a Christian here today or not, are you convinced that Jesus is the Son of the living God? Or are you committed to following Jesus wholeheartedly? Because the answer to these questions determines your eternal destiny. Heaven is real. But it's not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed unless you make a decision to follow Jesus. And after that decision, we all have a responsibility to live a life that reflects the character of Christ. Let's stop searching for natural bread. Let's stop searching for, for things that will meet our natural desires and seek a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life. Now, I don't know where you are in your personal walk. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand that the things in your natural life, the things that brings you comfort, maybe it's your job or your resources, it will not satisfy you and give you joy and peace like you anticipate. Yes, for a moment you might feel happy about it, but Christ offers salvation. And maybe you're here as a Christian and you've allowed stuff Things to get in the way of your relationship with Jesus. Things to distract you. Maybe even the blessing that you've been praying for is now a distraction to your relationship with Jesus. What are you going to do?
Are you going to allow this thing to be that bread in your life? Or will you seek Jesus, the true bread of life, the one that offers salvation? I'm going to give you a moment to reflect on where you are. And I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to invite us to respond in worship. Just looking in this chapter, you find people going out of their way, crossing water, getting in boats, seeking Jesus. And in just a short moment, the same desire, the same pursuit to seek Jesus led them to being deserters, leaving as fast as they came. In your pursuit of Jesus, it is my prayer that we don't lose that passion. Don't lose that passion to having a deeper relationship with Jesus. Father, I pray for the one that's here today that doesn't have a relationship with you. I pray, God, that you will allow them to realize that you are the bread of life. You're the one that offers all that we need to experience eternal relationship with you. Lord God, you sent your son to die on the cross for us. And I pray, God, that you help us to have that same passion and desire to not just serve you for one day, but for it to become a lifestyle for us, a lifestyle of worship. I pray, God, for, for all of us here that we evaluate our lives. Are we becoming complainers when you don't respond to the things that we desire from you? Are we grumbling about the things if you say to, for us to do something that seems difficult in our lives? I pray, God, as we come to um, services like these, that our focus will be on you and what you desire to do in and through our lives. Let us not be distracted by things that doesn't give you glory, but help us to be focused on only the things that points to your kingdom. I pray, God, that you will just move in and through our lives today, that your will be done in our lives, God, and you will remain the center of all that we do, and that you will help us to have that passionate and that desire to serve you. We just love you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Let's all respond in worship.